Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Laura Briggs. Her newest book is Taking Children. In these unprecedented times, one thing remains true. Those who wish to enact racist and discriminatory practices will find a way to do so, often taking advantage of crises to make horrific changes more swiftly. As Briggs shows in Taking Children, America has a long history of using racist policy to disband and explicitly harm families of color, from forcing Native American children to schools, built to pacify them to the current administration's use of child separation as a deterrent to immigration here. Separating children from their families has been a tool used by the government for centuries. Laura Briggs urges readers not to turn a blind eye, but to rise to the occasion to fight to change it. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Laura Briggs. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, you've written a book, Taking Children. Now, I just rewatched for the first time in a while, Taken with Liam Nielsen, which does involve the taking of a child, but a little different, uh, a little less, um, a little less uh, action-packed, your book, but uh, far more sinister. Uh, this is a heart-wrenching story you tell here about displacement of children from their parents, their primary caretakers. And, you know, this is for a couple years, or for a couple years ago, this was in the American consciousness when there was all this footage uh, at the border where, you know, in detention, children were separated from their parents. But you as a historian say, this is not a new story, right? This is a story that that, that predates uh, the country and it, and is actually interwoven with the very fabric of the United States. Is that fair to say? I think that's true. You know, it's really interesting to think about it in relationship to a movie like Taken, where the story we tell is that, you know, the worst thing that could happen to a parent is to lose their child. And yet it's been part of the experience of communities of color for 400 years in the Americas. And we don't treat that as the same kind of tragedy. And I think that as we, um, as we wrestle with this question of police brutality, which is finally getting the kind of attention that it deserves, I think it's important to look at our other forms of systemic violence against communities of color. And one of them in particular has been the taking of children. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember years ago, I, I used to do, was working with a religious organization that did uh, work with college students, and we had a a training seminar for our staff around around issues of race and anti-racism stuff. We were watching Rodney King clips. This is years ago. I mean, it was after Rodney King stuff, but we were we were looking at that stuff. And a friend and colleague of mine who's a white guy said, "I find now I get it." With this mixed groups, like, and he said, "It's one thing to fear chaos; it's another thing to fear the system." And so the Liam Neeson taken thing—that's like okay, the chaotic random event where you're cut. But that—that's a lot less scary than fearing the system, where it's not an, a random act of history, where it's actually the system is engineered to do this, right? 
Right. I think that's right. I think that for me as a white person now raising a white child, um, I know that if I take my nine-year-old and leave him on a playground and I have to go to work, nothing bad's going to happen, right? Um, uh, nobody's going to come after me and say, you abandoned that child and we need to arrest you. And the um, and that's not the experience in communities of color. I think that you know when we think back to the Reagan era, when we think about the war on drugs, while we think a lot about mass incarceration, we need to think also about sort of what was all the kerfuffle about um, about crack babies, especially now that we know that crack had almost no effect on infants. But we also know that hundreds of women went to jail still bleeding from labor because they tested positive for the presence of cocaine in their bloodstream um, during labor. And thousands and thousands of people lost their kids. And when we look now at the opioid epidemic, that may be an epidemic that has disproportionately we think of as a white people's epidemic. But again, what we're seeing is not just people of color, but all sorts of people losing their kids to a system that is designed to criminalize people who are in trouble. And so what we've seen in the last 10 years in Alabama, for example, is there've literally been 500 cases, at least 500 cases that we know of, where um, mothers who have tested positive for the presence of opioids, like you take a Percocet for pain um, and you wind up with the district attorney criminalizing you and taking your kid after you give, after you give birth. We have, um, so what we're, what we have is a systematic child taking system. We call it a child welfare system. But what it does best of all is take kids. Mm. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, and this kind of, I mean, terrorizing has gone back all the way into, I mean, it was inextricably woven into slavery, right? And from there on, in, in most of the social kind of um, transformations in American history, you kind of, you kind of, you, um, you document that this has been with us in one form or another consistently and constantly. It was systematically part of the ways that people were disciplined under slavery. Um, mothers in particular were threatened with the loss of their children if they didn't, if they didn't behave the ways that they were supposed to on a plantation. The risk, the threat was always that their children would be sold away from them. And it's in fact one of the most powerful pieces of abolitionist literature written by, um, by former, formerly enslaved people and also by white abolitionists telling over and over again the stories of how people were losing their children to slavers um, who were selling them as a form of keeping people in line, a form of terror. And when we saw in the 1890s, as the Indian Wars were wrapping up, right, we, we think of the natural border of the United States as being somewhere around the southwest. But of course, at the birth of the country, the border of the country was at the Appalachian Mountains, and Indian country was everything west of that. And so 
um, centuries of Indian wars and reservation policy, Trail of Tears, land swaps. Um, in the 1880s and 1890s, um, the the presidents, the military, the cavalry were trying to figure out, okay, we've pushed people, pushed indigenous people very far west. We've got them mostly on reservations and, place, and in places like Oklahoma. How are we going to ensure that Indian wars don't continue to happen, don't continue to um, crop up every time there's a violation of treaties? And so they said, well, look, there are basically two things that are causing Indian wars. Um, one of them is that these people are tribally organized in sovereign nations. And the other thing is that they speak languages that are not English. And so how are we going to interrupt, um, how are we going to interrupt their cultural transmission, transmission of these of these, uh, this ability to defend these sovereign nations. And so they said, look, how we're going to stop these wars is we're going to take children. And, and you have, so these, you have the these arresting and, and photos of people when they went into these schools and then went out. And now the skin color on some of these photos is lighter. Was that done photographically or, or, or is it to people inside? I mean, was that a trick to sort of show we're, we're, we're whitening these people? Right. It's really fascinating. So there were these sort of before and after pictures that were passed around all over the country that showed indigenous people and uh, native kids when they entered boarding schools and after they had been in boarding schools for months or years. And the, you know, the important thing is um, boys have cut their hair, people have changed their clothes, they look like young Victorian men and women. Um, but the other thing that's so confusing and striking about these photos is something about the lighting, or I'm not enough of a of a scholar of early photography to know what kinds of tricks um, of development might have given rise to this. But you look at them and you're like, these kids are really, really dark skinned in these before pictures and they're lighter in these after pictures. So it's clear that the story that they were trying to tell with the pictures was this is what civilization looks like. We've civilized these children. They're going to be assimilated. They're English speakers and they're going to go work in people's homes or on their farms. And they're going to look different, apparently. So just like we know that um, white folks passed around lynching photos in the early 20th century as kinds of souvenirs of a system of terror, we also see the same thing in a f uh, slightly earlier decades and continuing into the 20th century of passing around these before and after pictures of Native kids looking um, lighter, more civilized, civilized in quotes. I'm struck by something. I've, I remember when the Trump administration was detaining kids separately from their, their parents. And people said, you know, well, this is what we do in prison. You go to prison, you get separated from your parents, which is, which is true. But, but that's not a strategy in, in the penal system, right? In the corrections system. Like the, you talk about the, this was a strategy. Like it was not a kind of thing. Oh, this is what we have to do. They didn't have to do this, right? This was the idea. Well, if we do this, 
people from Guatemala and other places are going to know you really don't want to come up here because you're going to get separated from your kids. I mean, this was not a kind of, oh, our hands are tied. It's This was a, 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 a deliberate attempt kind of to terrorize, right? To sort of say a, 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 with an attempt of, hey, we're, we're going to show you the cost of coming here. Right. And you don't have to be a critic of the policy to realize that that's what they were saying. Like, that's what they said they were doing, right? They said, well, what we want is for people to withdraw their petitions for asylum. So since the Second World War, um, there's been a global system of human rights law that says, if you are terrorized in your home country, you can come to another country and apply for refugee status. Now, lots of countries in the United States, and certainly one of them, have never been really crazy about that system, right? Because it means that you can have a whole bunch of immigrants from Syria or from Central America suddenly appearing on your doorstep. But it's been, it was a response to the United States turning, um, adults and children away um, right before the Holocaust or during the Holocaust who were Jewish and saying, we desperately need asylum because we're going to. Wouldn't you think we'd learn from that and just say, hey, look, wow, we had a big blind spot here. Let's take in twice the the asylum seekers to make up for a really big blind spot we had here. Right. I mean, that's a pretty big historical mistake. Right. Yeah, and the Trump administration I mean, just I mean, like, Laura, wants I, to keep I'm repeating not, that story. I'm not a professional historian like you. Like, so this is, I, mean, I defer to you. Like, but I would say it's a professional historian, right? Keeping, turning Jews away, seeking asylum during the Holocaust. That seems like a pretty bad historical mistake, right? From your professional opinion, where you sit. <laughs> It certainly seems like we built both nationally, we built a system of laws, and internationally, we built a system of laws that said we will never do that again, right? Never again is what we said then. And here we are, we're doing all the same things, right? Jews were turned away from the border under laws saying that they were, um, they had to prove that they weren't likely to become a public charge. And that's the exact same structure of laws that we're using right now to turn people away. But the coronavirus epidemic has even um, pushed forward the Trump administration's agenda. So in 2018, 2019, what they really wanted was to get rid of the system of asylum for refugees. And remember that, you know, since Reagan, we barely admit any um, any asylum seekers, right? You have to go through this really onerous process of establishing that you have the right documentation and that you can prove that you really were being targeted as a member of the language of the law as a particular social group. And you're and you, and you dislocated so, for years, right? I mean, you're, you're spending time in camps or centers. It's not like, there's not like, hey, we'll put you up at the Holiday Inn. You get a lovely little buffet breakfast, and hey, you have cable TV. I mean, this is not an easy process to endure. You don't go, you don't just go through this uh, whimsically because you're looking for, you know, an inexpensive vacation and, and you can't afford Airbnb. I mean, this is grueling and arduous, right? Right. Under the Obama administration, they tried to make it a little bit less punitive because remember, these are people who have entered the country legally. It is legal to cross a border and say, I am asking for asylum. That's what we have a structure of laws for. And so the, 
George W. Bush administration was putting um, children and parents in um, these refugee centers, separating children and parents, by the way. You know, Trump always says, um, it was Obama. Well, it wasn't Obama. It was George W. Bush who started separating parents and children. Yeah, yeah you, talk, you talk about um, it in your book, right? Obama the, actually stopped it and then got, su- and then got such backlash, he kind of let it lapse. I mean, it was kind of, just wasn't a, ba- a fight, a hill he w- he's willing to die on. Which we could say whether that's that's right. You know, I, I mean, we probably wish it was a hill he would have wanted to die on, right? But but it was not a kind of thing where it was not um, the same kind of thing where Jeff Sessions and Trump are like, "We're going to show now, baby. We're going to show you. You come over here seeking asylum, you lose your kid." Right. So for a minute, um, the tr- the Obama administration tried to reform the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers getting especially children out of um out of detention and so he put ankle bracelets on people and said you know we can monitor people without incarcerating them and then in 2011 and again in 2014 there were waves of asylum seekers especially children and the nativist right which came out of the woodwork during the obama administration right the birtherism the um white supremacist alarm at a black president they started having demonstrations oh my god these children they're gonna take over our country and the obama administration was really harsh in how it treated um in children that came in in 2014. And so it started again, um, putting children in immigrant detention and it, um, used expedited removal, which means basically you don't get an asylum hearing. You don't get to go before a judge and say, this is what happened. This is why I think I'm going to be, um, killed by a gang. If I don't, if I return, you can talk for a minute to a um, somebody from Customs and Border Protection. And if they don't judge that essentially you've come out of a torture chamber, then they deport you. And we know that during the Obama administration, children who were returned were subsequently killed, as in fact they said they were going to be. So it wasn't like we had this kind, sweet, gentle um, system in 2014 and 2015 and 2016. Well, who is who is um, responsible? I mean, in, in the Obama administration, right? Because generally, like, if you're president of the United States, you know, you, a, a lot of these policies are coming from advisors and from department heads and strategists. So, are there people you could, are there two or three people in the Obama administration at that time that you know that were advocates of this? So, Department of Homeland Security Chief um, Janet okay. Napolitano, um, we. It had to have been involved in um, in these kinds of actions. I think we believe that while Obama himself wasn't a huge fan of this, he definitely decided that there was no political movement that was going to demand something different, right? The DREAM Act was an executive order that allowed children who had been brought by their parents um, at, before they were, while they were young, um, and allowed them to stay without being at risk of deportation, um, as long as they were in school or in the military. And so there was a movement for the DREAM Act. And while 
it failed as a piece of legislation, Obama wound up supporting it as an executive order. But literally while he was giving the speech, um, announcing that dreamers were not going to be deported, he was moving women and children from the, um, from the camps where they were being held, where lawyers had set up a trailer near them in Artesia, New Mexico. And some of them were slated to be released the next day, and they had hearings, and their lawyers knew where they were. Literally, while he was giving the dreamer speech, he moved women and children away from their lawyers, hid them from the immigration system, the refugee system. Um, So... We know that the Obama administration made certain kinds of choices. They chose to um, support the DREAM Act because there was a political movement. They did nothing for um, women and children who were crossing as refugees at, because people agreed. Is to that because the other there's way. a sympathy for the for the dreamers because like they've been here and kind of they're proving their proving that they're telling the line and they're productive citizens. And is that kind of, you think like it's, a, it, it, is it, a, it, I mean, it's sad that this is political calculus and the, but it, it, is it, is it that like, well, th- these kids could be freeloaders or the people could be, is that kind of the dynamic? Like it's easier to defend the people that have been brought here and made it under adverse conditions than it is to defend the people that are just coming. I mean, I mean, I, I mean what's the political calculus? I think there are also incredibly sympathetic stories we could tell about the women and children who came as um, to apply for refugee status, um, to petition for asylum. I think it's, I would say it differently. I would say that the advocates on the two sides, that Obama knew he was up against incredible opposition from nativists and white supremacists. And Obama was always reaching for a political center that no longer existed. And so when he saw the DREAM Act movement, it was Democrats for the most part, right? Um, he was willing to, it's, he was willing to stick his neck out that far and say, look, this is, and, and in fairness, it's important to remember that Everything that Obama supported from the Affordable Care Act to the DREAM Act were things that in recent years the Republican Party right, supported right, right, right. too. I mean, right? Obama, I mean, he was the last kind of like dreamer in bipartisanship, right? I mean, because I mean, the guy had more Republicans in his cabinet than, you know, in a bipartisan. It was, this is one of the things now where I think politically when Joe Biden says, I have experience working across the aisle, and I believe that. But I wonder, does that aisle exist anymore? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, are we are we in the day and age where that even matters? Because I think Clinton was the last president where that was still possible, where there was there was some wiggle room across the aisle. There were more moderate senators. I mean, it, it seems like you could be the best negotiator, which of course we do have the best. He's the best negotiator. He's always the best. But just but doesn't it seem that that's like the where we're at now politically? It doesn't matter how many relationships you have. It doesn't matter. We're just so tribal, and 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 no one wants to. Everyone's certain. Everyone's sure. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot of room. And, it, and it, I feel like that dream died kind of in the Obama. Era. I feel like Obama was the last person we voted for, at least in 2008. I think 2012 was different, but in 2008 there was still this hope that maybe we could be a different country than we are with, the, with all the divisions and the harsh rhetoric. But that seems to have just totally gone away. Right. I think the thing, the hard thing is that that dream, even in 2008, was only on mm-hmm. one side. 
right? Um, everything that Obama reached across the aisle for were was to enact Republican policies. And honestly, you could say the same thing about Clinton, right? The he was the great, the last great law and order Republican that we've had in a long time, right? He, um, whether it was the enforcing board, the border didn't come from Reagan, right? Reagan was amnesty guy, and it was Clinton who started really um, militarizing the hell out of the border. And so whether we look at Clinton in terms of his um, his incarceration policies with respect to imprisonment and policing, or if we look at him with respect to, um, to immigration and the expansion of ICE and the expansion of immigration detention, that um, it certainly got worse under George W. Bush after 2001. It got much more intense. But that sense that we could criminalize immigration, I think, really starts with Clinton. I don't think we've had, um, I don't think we've seen legitimately liberal policies with respect to immigrants since. And maybe this is Carter. interesting how this works out, right? I always say Richard Nixon. Our, our last great liberal president, like policy right? <laughs> you think about it? Right. But what do you account for? Why Ray? I mean, you look at Reagan, the hero of the conservatives, amnesty. I mean, what motivates him to do amnesty? Oh, well, there's always been, and Trump is in the middle of this too. There's always been a huge Republican contingent that's like, absolutely, this is the best immigration system we could possibly have. Um, criminalize the heck out of immigrants. And, um, but let them work for wages below minimum. And so Reagan had tons of Republican support. This white nativism in the Republican Party was not a majority. So for Reagan, Reagan, it's bottom line stuff, right? A lot and, of business owners are like, look, there's big money in this. They're industrious people. You let them come over here. You know, It costs us less money because they're not citizens. And you kind of, you know, we just kind of you know, toe the line. Right. I mean, this country's been built on the backs of the unpaid and underpaid labor of people of color since 1619, right? And so enslavement is no longer legal. So we turn to a system of, um, of immigration that's nativist in intent, right? What we want is for people to come for 10 or 20 years to break their bags doing work in the fields or doing construction work. And then we want them to go home. The thing that children immigrating does is to break the implicit contract that's existed since Reagan, right? You, you, um, you people from Latin America or China or Africa are welcome here as long as you leave. But as, but now, you talk you talk in the book say, about Asian no. immigration waves and how they mostly let Asian males over because they thought, well, if we only let right. Asian males over, they're going to go home. So we'll get the railroad built, we'll get this done, and then they're going to go home, and we're not going to be burdened with this. So there's this intentional immigration policy, which which is which is there so that they can't have children, so that they can't have anchors, and they'll go right. Right. The first major um, immigration restriction law in this country is the Page Act in the 1870s, which bans essentially all Chinese women. And the ostensibly it's about um, trafficking and prostitution, 
But as much as anything, the goal is to prevent people from having children. And because what the United States wants is people's labor, not to support people's reproduction. No elders, no children, no um, paying for schools, no vaccination programs, no health care. We want young, healthy people. And if they become disabled, if they become injured, um, we, we're going to deport them. We want them to be sent home. You can even see that during the pandemic, right? Deporting people because they're believed to have coronavirus and seeding the epidemic up and down the world, particularly Latin I'm struck. Yeah, it, it's interesting because you say, you quote uh, Gore Vidal in the book and say, um, who, who calls the United States the United States of amnesia, complaining, you say, of our collective inability to remember even recent history. We learn nothing because we remember nothing. Yeah, this is interesting. I, I am so struck by this because you think of how horrified we were by this policy of separating children from their parents. I'm assuming it's still going on, right? I mean, it's... It, it, well, what's... No, actually, something it's changed a lot because effectively asylum seekers are not even okay, being so, allowed okay, in the so, country. Okay. Since March, literally two but before, people but before, have been allowed to COVID, get right, hearings. It was still going on, right? Well, it, it it changed after 2019 or after 2018 when a judge said, no, you can't separate people from their children. What the Trump administration started doing was saying, well, we're not separating them because they're applying for um, asylum. We're separating them because they're criminals. And we in this country have no history of being able to see through that pretense of criminalization. We started out talking about um, a, right, a right. crack epidemic that was essentially invented, um, and the incarcerate when mass incarceration after 1970 or in the late beginning in the late 70s separates tons of parents and children, right? And we never say, or we have rarely in our history had a strong activist movement that could say, no. We can't keep criminalizing people for, like, nothing, right? That's what people are in the streets about now, is even if George Floyd, in fact, passed a counterfeit $20 bill, and we don't know if he did or not, that shouldn't have been punished with the death penalty. We're trying to learn how to ask questions about people. And, and the criminalized thing, though, the criminalized thing, though, the right? ACL These are people that are coming over seeking asylum, right? That's not a crime. Well, the first thing the Trump administration did was to say, well, if they don't cross. Oh, right. I remember that. I remember that. Right. I remember that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Then they have committed a crime by crossing and they're trafficking their own children. Um, and repeatedly judges said. And if you get the, if you get them to come at the authorized crossing point and you run the administration, you can say, look, just turn them away at the authorized. So, so that's right. Get them there. The United States is full. You can't come. And so what the Trump administration started doing was two things. One, it started saying, well, the reason we're taking these people's children is because they're actually criminals. We have reason to believe that these are gang members or uh, Customs and Border Protection officer saw this father like not change his daughter's diaper for an hour. And so we're separating these parents from their kids because they're um, neglectful. 
Or look, they have a criminal record. See this time when there was some confusing, angry incident um, where there was $5 worth of damage and they were arrested um, by the police in Guatemala. Um, they are criminals and that's why we're taking their children. But then the next set of incidents or the next set of policy decisions was simply to push people back out across the border to Mexico and say, all right, you can have an asylum hearing because the law gives you that right, but you can't wait in the United States while you're doing that. And so we started seeing, we stopped seeing kids taken from their parents once they got into the United States because they were never getting into the United States. And we heard all sorts of things that all their, that the notices that of their hearings were being sent to one address at a shelter in Mexico where nobody was actually going. And then the next thing they did was started deporting people to countries that they weren't from. So if you were from Honduras, you could be deported to Guatemala because the Trump administration got um, agreements with Guatemala and Honduras that they were going to be um, safe when, third when they countries. Did, when they did put that, let's say I'm a mom with two kids, and they say, you're from Honduras, so you're sending you to Guatemala. Do I get on a plane? Or, okay, or like, what other plane. option would be? They would bus or, 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 I mean, I wouldn't think, a boat? So depending on, yeah, depending on where you're going, usually you're on a, um, usually you're on a plane if, um, People are getting deported to Mexico, which we were also doing. Um, then you're probably going on a bus or in a car. You're, are you on a commercial flight or are you on a government flight? I mean, you're, um, well, we've seen both, right? In fact, we've seen commercial flights that were disrupted in 2018 and 2019 because people actually stood up and said, no, this plane is not leaving as long as these people are being um, held here against their will and flown to Central America or Syria or Iraq. I mean, that has got to be the most traumatizing thing. You've already left a country because you've been traumatized and are fear fear for your life. And then you're going to be sent to another country where you have no social network, no social trust, and no kind of... I mean, that's just like... uh, It seems a recipe for people committing suicide. Well, I think what the Trump administration really, if I can say this in the, you know, from their point of view, what they wanted was for people to stop coming. They, um, and so they believed that if they could create the most terrifying situation possible once they came to the United States and traumatize the hell out of people, put their children in, ice boxes um, in freezing cold cells uh, where some of them died of flu, Um, separate their children or put them on a plane and send them to Honduras or someplace they've never been. But at the same time, what the Trump administration is doing is undoing all the work of reformers in Central America to try to make sure that um, what the Trump administration did was ensure that people who were corrupt, people who were um, terrorizing people, people who were allied with the gangs and the cartels and the police and the government, that it was one continuous system. And so they had to make the United States as scary as they were making Central America. So th- th- I want to get back to this United States of amnesia, because I think about how, you know, um, we had the COVID, we've had this COVID pandemic 
And then it, it, it strikes me that like after the George Floyd tragedy, we just stopped talking Corona. Like, I mean, we're just kind of like, so we're having these protests, which I, again, I think, you know, it, this is the moment where you could actually get some reform because there's momentum. And yeah, I mean, you're watching these protests and you're thinking, this is not really socially distanced and there's a lot of crazy stuff going but it's just like, it's almost like our inability to hold two truths in our mind at the same time. Like, um, no, I, I did see some medical professionals actually came out and said, look, we think that uh, institutional racism is a bigger public health threat even than COVID. And this is why we're saying like, do it safe a bit. So I think like that's, that's an example where like, I'm like, oh my gosh, here's a group of people that are holding two truths at the same time. But this whole United States of amnesia, it just seems like our inability, like, you know, it, things are still going on, right, that are deplorable and despicable with regard to immigration and ch child separation and things like this. But it's like, we just can't keep it, on the, like our bandwidth seems to get like smaller and smaller. And so we just kind of can only handle what, I don't know if it's this sort of 24-hour news cycle, that we can all just group think one news story at a time or something and are unable to see there are multiple injustices and struggles that we probably need to deal with, um, you know, walking and chewing gum at the same time, right? Right. Like, think about this story. The um, House Appropriations Committee is charging Homeland Security with um, unjustly and illegally holding kids separate from their parents. They pass a law saying, you know, we're going to, we're not going to, continue to appropriate your money at the same rate if you don't release kids. And that's 2005. Congress passes the Keeping Families Together Act, um, or it's, uh, introduces the Keeping Family Together Act in 2005. And so something happened between 2005 and 2018 that we simply couldn't hold the memory of that. But I think the current problem with the news cycle is kind of the Trump effect, that Trump is so good at telling us, uh, at keeping people riveted with his, um, with whatever story he wants to be telling, that we've all gotten really good at ignoring everything else that we already knew. And so while I don't blame Trump for a great deal that's wrong with our immigration system. Um, although in some ways Trump has been, made it really easy for people to see exactly how does our immigration system work? What are the cruelties that are built into it? And why is that okay? Is that really okay with us? But then as soon as there's a new or confusing set of facts on the ground that in 2019, they're saying that we're separating kids because their mm -hmm. parents are criminals. In 2020, we're pushing people across the border to Mexico and we can't, and to so-called safe third countries. So we can't hold all those facts in our minds. We can maybe remember that in the 1980s and 1990s, the U.S. was involved, and before that, all the way back to the 50s, the U.S. was involved in wars in Central America. But its role subsequent to the 1990s, like who remembers that the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton in particular, supported a coup 
in Central America, uh, in Honduras, or looked the other way and agreed to support um, the new president of Honduras, that there are death squads roaming the streets again in Central America and in Honduras in particular after that. Do we remember that? No. Do you just get depressed as a historian when you think about the whole, like, the United States of Amnesia? Do you think, like, what am I doing in my life? I could have made, I could have done honest work and made more money. <laughs> you just bang your head against the books and be like, what am I doing? What am I doing? <laughs> right. In 2018, I was kind of losing my mind because I had published a book in 2012 and said, you know, the most important thing that's going on right now is not just that parents have been losing their kids through child welfare systems since um, practically always, but that the next big crisis is that immigrants are losing their kids. And I was writing that during the Obama administration. Immigrants are losing their kids, and um, what are we going to do about it? Um, and 2018 came and people were like, oh, my God, immigrants are losing their kids. And I was like, I wrote that book. I really wrote that book. Can we please move on? Because, of course, I'd written the book in the hopes that it would somehow stop. Not that a historian's book can make us, um, as a country, change policy and not take immigrant kids. But, yeah, absolutely. This was super visible to me as I was writing that beginning in 2010, that this was what was happening I'm next. Curious, you know, do you have historians on the like center right spectrum that you regularly dialogue with around stuff like this? I mean, is is, is, is are those folks present in your academic context, like somewhere in the landscape where you're kind of able to engage in a level with people you know pretty well? Um. So I see, you know, I, I see people who I work with and I see people on Twitter. Um, but no, I think the reality is that historians, as much as anybody else, kind of mm. talk past each other. And frankly, there aren't that many center-right historians, right? I mean, there are people like Newt Gingrich who write histories about, like, that are literally fiction. Um, what if the South had won the Civil War? I was like, <laughs> Newt, that's not history. It didn't happen. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so the reality is, I think, I really started to feel this around 2007, 2008, higher ed had been, I, I've been working in public higher ed my whole life, and public higher ed was being systematically defunded um, through tax cuts. And I started to realize at a meeting of the American Historical Association that literally almost nobody anymore was in the center, that we had collectively um, stopped believing in a Republican Party that was so anti-intellectual, so anti-empirical, and so, um, and, you know, basically hated our institutions, the universities and so forth. And so they've all sort of peeled off to these incredibly well-paid think tanks in Washington. And the rest of us are, I mean, the right complains that, the, that universities don't hire Republicans. Um, the number of P, the number of Republicans with PhDs is becoming vanishingly small. 
the more you batter higher ed as a party, as a set of policies, as a set of institutions, the clearer it becomes that, you know, historians are just on a different side. Yeah, it's funny because my friend Mark Oppenheimer, uh, he's a, a, a writer for Tablet Magazine and adjuncts at Yale and hosts the Unorthodox podcast, which is the top Jewish podcast probably in the world. But he was saying at, at an event, um, I was at where he was speaking. It was a free speech kind of event or something. He was kind of the token. He's like, I'm a double token. I'm, I'm a to- token liberal and a token Jew. But he said, you know, he was saying that like around the representation thing, he's like, look, I tell my conservative students, go do a PhD. I'd love to see you broaden the dialogue. He's like, I can't even get liberal students to do it now because their parents, he's like, my parents were totally content with me doing a PhD and just being academic. And now everybody wants their kid in finance or in law. You know, people don't like even liberal right. parents don't want their kids in the, in, in the academy. Right. I mean, it's. We are so driven on finance and some of the other, and maybe certain STEM, 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 maybe a little bit of med lawyer stuff that's still acceptable. But like you know, doing humanities PhD, this seems like you know, um, like a kiss of death, right? In, in upper, you know, upper middle class aspiring culture. That's right, and you know what people rarely say enough is that STEM. <clears throat> that the overwhelming majority of STEM jobs are in defense, are um, militarized or in intelligence. And so, not surprisingly, all the things that make you a lot of money are more and more um, right wing. Uh, Eisenhower's words, right? <laughs> Military industrialized, com- a prophetic voice, right? That That's where we've, we've, we've gone. Well, that's right. But, you know, we're now in a total crisis in higher ed, right? Um, COVID-19 is, has made universities essentially into institutions like nursing homes, prisons, meatpacking plants. Like if we pack a whole bunch of um, young people and then old folks like me into the same space, we're going to have a rampant ap- epidemic, but if we right. don't, and we're already we're in stage, go broke. like they were and, t- saying stage two is going to be in the fall. Well, that stage two is now, right? I mean, stage two is now. So stage three is going to be in the fall. And we haven't seen, I feel, I feel like right now we're seeing the numbers from the states opening early. Although strangely, Georgia has kind of, which is flummoxing people, is kind of flattening. They're not going down, but they're flattening. But Florida, place, a lot of states like are going radically up. And that's not accounting, right, and that's not accounting for the protests. Like, so, so we haven't even seen that wave right. yet, right? Like, of, of we are putting all these people in dense urban areas. So, not only are we in trouble with the COVID nineteen epidemic, but clearly, higher ed is you know on a collision course with a wall. Because if it doesn't reopen, people are totally terrified that students aren't going to come back, and. Well, how we've funded ourselves, even in public higher ed, which used to be free or nearly free um, because it was supported by taxes, is that we're increasingly relying on tuition. And so either one of two things is going to happen. We're either going to see a ton of higher ed, even public higher ed institutions going bankrupt, or we're going to have to see a tax-funded bailout of higher ed that looks like what Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren was saying. Like, saying that higher ed should be free is not that radical of a thing, right? That's what, that's where we were, um, nearly so when I was, when I was in college. I'm only in my fifties. 
And for people in their 60s, they could almost all go to public higher ed for free or nearly for free. So we need to be looking at how COVID-19 can change the landscape for the good if we're just brave enough to well, do Well, Laura, it. you seem incredibly brave. And thank you for writing um, your most recent book, uh, Taking Children, a History of American Terror. You're brave to write about it because it's really hard stuff to research, I'm sure, to read about, to talk about. Thanks for taking some time to talk with it about, about it with me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. I feel passionately about it, and let's hope we can look at years ahead, not just a change of the police system, but the soft policing system Your lips to God's of taking ears, children. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media, share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.